this is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and the Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. For episode 26, we mixed it up a bit. We held our first live podcast. Last month, ACLU PA hosted ACLU 100, a traveling exhibit on the organization's first century of work. The exhibit made a two-day tour stop in Philadelphia, and on one of the nights, I sat down with two of my colleagues, Legislative Director Liz Randall and Senior Staff Attorney Molly Tack Hooper. As you'll hear, Molly, Liz, and I bounced around from topic to topic. The conversation is wide-ranging, and I think you'll enjoy it. This conversation was recorded on May 23rd. Welcome to ACLU 100, and welcome to... The first live podcast of Speaking Freely with the ACLU of PA. We've been doing this podcast for about 13 months. We started in April of 2018, and this is the first time we've done it in front of a live audience. So uh, give us your best feedback. If you've listened to the podcast, you may know that typically we sit down with one or two experts on an issue, and we'll spend 20 to 30 minutes talking about a specific topic. We're going to do it a little different for this particular live podcast. We do have our two experts. Please welcome ACLUPA Legislative Director Elizabeth Randall and ACLUPA Senior Staff Attorney Molly Tack Hooper. So the reason why this is going to be a little bit different than the typical podcast is because we're going to spend time, maybe a few minutes, on multiple topics. So if the regular podcast is kind of like having a nice entree, this is more like the small plates, the tapas version of the podcast. We're going to hit on a bunch of different topics. Now, interestingly, uh, Liz and Molly don't really know which topics we're going to touch on, Fun. which I hope that hasn't given them too much anxiety. Um, but we're going to do this, uh, two, we have two different segments here. Um, first, we are going to do some word association. So I'm going to give Liz and Molly a phrase, and they're going to say the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> and, and then we may spend a, a few minutes talking about that particular topic. And then the second segment involves all of you. So uh, we will take questions from the audience. My colleague Jamie over here has index cards. Melissa has index cards. Um, and if you want to ask us a question about civil liberties, we will do our best to answer it. Um, so with that, let's go ahead and get started. Are you two ready? <laughs> ready, Andy. All right, let's do it. So we're going to start pretty easy. We'll, we'll ease into this. First phrase is the First Amendment. <laughs> first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> Vital and under attack. Um, it's just the foundation of our democracy, right? Without a First Amendment, you don't have an informed electorate who can make informed decisions at the ballot box. That's why we spend so much time on it, because you don't, you don't get the other rights without it, basically. Um, but for decades and decades, we've seen government at all levels just slowly chipping away at it. Um, right now, one of the areas of First Amendment that we're working on is actually transit advertising, which on its face may not sound super important. Who really cares what ads there are on the subway? Um, but the principles at stake in, in our cases are about whether the government can censor speech because it's controversial, 
And that would be a really, really bad thing. Um, if that were to be true in advertising on the side of a bus, then who's to say it wouldn't be true in other areas where the government regulates speech? So that's why we take these cases. Well, Molly, I wanted to ask you about a, a case that you also are working on outside of the uh, public transit uh, situation, um, and that is students' rights. Um, you have a situation in Schoolkill County where a student engaged in speech off campus, and the school tried to punish her. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I can. Um, we historically have taken a lot of cases where students say something that the teachers and administrators don't like, and they get punished for it. This one fits that model. Uh, we represent a high school cheerleader who uh, didn't make the varsity squad one year and was really pissed about it. Understandably, she'd worked really hard. On a weekend, she was hanging out with a friend at a convenience store, like totally outside of school, outside of cheerleading, blew off a, a Snapchat to her closest 350 friends or so <laughs> that said, fuck school, fuck softball, fuck cheer, fuck everything. The snapshot disappeared by the time school started again on Monday, but uh, because kids are fairly tech-savvy, it had been captured by, like, one student taking a photo of the snap on another student's phone or something. One of them showed it to the coaches, and they decided to uh, kick her off the cheerleading team as punishment for this snap. Um, we already established through our other student speech cases, though, that schools don't have the power to punish kids for what they say off campus on their own time, right? Schools don't have complete First Amendment control over students all the time. They get to exercise a little bit more authority over what kids say when they're in school, when they're at school activities, but not when they're just hanging out with their friends on the weekend. So um, we filed suit for her. Uh, we won pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the school has appealed, so um, we're headed to the Third Circuit for that one. And Liz, I want to ask you about something at the legislature, too. So Liz spends a lot of time uh, in Harrisburg at the state capitol, and there, when I was thinking about First Amendment, the first thing that came to mind was this bill that would stick a person who gets arrested at a protest with all the costs for public services. Tell us about that. So I spent about an hour today on the phone with a reporter about a piece of legislation that had been introduced last session, was reintroduced again, um, and garners a lot, has garnered a lot of understandable attention from constituents, from a lot of our members. We get phone calls about it. Um, and they've recently, I don't know if you noticed this, but they, there's some constituents, or uh, I should say constituents of um, Senator Martin, uh, who's the bill sponsor, who have taken out a billboard in his district, sort of railing against his attack on free speech. Um, but the, uh, the bill would um, didn't move last session, may not move again this session. A lot of times legislators introduce bills, they don't move. Um, and, but in this case, it is, it's almost laughably unconstitutional. On its face, it would fall in a nanosecond. But at the same time, because it is so punitive, I mean, the idea would be if you are convicted of a misdemeanor, you could shove someone, which would be a misdemeanor offense. If you get convicted of a misdemeanor or a felony at a protest, you could be then held liable for all of the damages and the costs associated with all of the emergency response um, costs for uh, public safety responses, police overtime, a whole host of things that was either incurred by the state 
and or by the local municipality. And so the problem, of course, is that when you have legislators that are messaging, even though it may be a bill or a, a law that could never be really um, uh, enacted in any sort of measure without getting immediately <laughs> struck down, the problem is, is that we need to pay attention to how legislators, you know, what their intent is, who they're targeting. You know, we, if we have the Super Bowl, you know, in Philadelphia, for example, um, you know, that could be, that would incur a lot of public safety costs and responses, but he's not targeting th those instances. It's only under the, in the context of a protest, so. Right, and this issue came up because of the uh, protests in the Dakotas around the pipeline. The pipeline. And there's some pipe, there's pipeline work in eastern and western Pennsylvania, and a lot of the environmental groups have been pretty active in opposing this Senate Bill 323. Yeah, it's meant to chill free speech, and it's it's upsetting and alarming constituents. And so, if that was the point of the legislation, because it is flatly unconstitutional, if the point was to alarm constituents and other people in the Commonwealth, then he succeeded. So. All right, second phrase, uh -oh. smart justice. Ooh. So smart justice is the ACLU's campaign that focuses on criminal justice reform uh, in several arenas, uh, bail reform, prosecutorial accountability, um, probation and parole reform, and sentencing reform. Did I just, I, uh, nice, all right. Um, so, um, and I think what's, what has worked, and I've actually heard a lot of legislators and some of our allies use the term smart justice because it, it really, it works in a way, it doesn't cut along partisan lines. So one of the strongest elements of what we've been doing around a lot of this legislation is working with very sort of strange bed, bedfellows. So we're working with Americans for Prosperity, the Commonwealth Foundation, these are right in like conservative and libertarian-leaning organizations, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and then an incredibly robust and active group of uh, directly impacted organizations, Just Leadership, the Coalition to Abolish Death by Incarceration, Center for Returning Citizens. So there's a whole group. I mean, we have a lot of organizations that are working together. So I think rather than trying to pitch our smart justice agenda and the kind of work that we're, um, we're doing around it as a partisan issue, smart justice, I think, actually places the focus in the right place, which is that we're trying to use like data-driven policies and solutions as opposed to just trying to tack along a particularly partisan line. And it's been quite successful, I think. And it's an ambitious goal to cut the prison population yeah. by 50% and combat racial disparities in the criminal justice system. And there is, the legal department has some uh, involvement in this as well with litigation we, we filed recently against the courts in Philadelphia um, because they were not following the rules around cash bail. They're keeping people in prison who can't afford it, keeping them in jail. Um, all right, next phrase. The state of Pennsylvania election law. Antiquated. That one's easy. Um, in so many ways, right? So we don't have early voting... We have absentee voting because our state constitution actually requires that we have absentee voting, um, but the deadline to return your absentee ballot, if you take advantage of this, is the earliest in the nation by like several days. We don't have no fault absentee voting, right? So you can't just vote absentee because it's more convenient. There are very narrow requirements for who can vote absentee. Um, the whole system just needs to be updated so that more people can actually exercise this fairly important right called the right to vote. We're part of a coalition called Keystone Votes. I recommend you check that out, keystonevotes.org. They have a lot of great information about um, issues we're, we're advocating on when it comes to changing election law. All right, everybody keep an eye on Liz for this one. 
I know it's coming. I know it. Marcy's <laughs> Law. I knew it. Yes. My favorite topic. Do we have four hours? Okay. So um, the reason we're sort of laughing about this is that the ACLU and really only one other organization, which is the Pennsylvania Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, PACTL, are the only two organizations that have publicly opposed a proposal that is currently in the legislature to amend our state constitution to add a Crime Victims Bill of Rights, which sounds reasonable and great. Who could possibly oppose such a thing? And I think the power behind it is because it makes, to some people, some intuitive sense that if we are looking at, and some of our criminal justice work is looking at uh, making reforms to how we, you know, our over and mass incarceration problem, et cetera, that we might want to make sure that we also attend to uh, crime victims as well. The problem that we have sort of discussed in many iterations, and I'm sort of a one person, you know, drum beater on this, um, but the way that the proposed, the amendment is written would directly conflict with the well-established like since the Magna Carta, established rights to protect the accused. Um, it is one of our most central principles. It is something that appears not only in our Bill of Rights, um, but also within the Constitution itself. And so as a result, the idea that we would, um, that we would attempt to give individual people the same uh, crime victims, alleged crime victims in this case, typically, the same rights as the accused, which protects all of us including people who may be innocent of a crime or wrongfully charged and or convicted, would undermine some of our most basic and most closely held sacred constitutional rights. And so we have been trying to bang the drum about this. It's, um, it's a complicated, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but um, it's a complicated issue a little bit to understand. I mean, I think people's eyes start glazing over when you start talking about it, which is understandable. But the thing is, is that this bill, it's technical, it's not really a, so Marcy's law is a misnomer, let's just say that. It's not a law, it would be an amendment, right? So um, once it gets uh, past the legislature, it will go directly on the ballot. It doesn't go to the governor for a signature. It goes right to the ballot for voters to vote on. There have been, uh, I think it's 11 states at this point that have amended their state constitutions. And so most people, it sounds very reasonable, um, but there are a lot of potentially hidden costs, like lots of delays that, may, um, that might go along with... Um, uh, the implementation or adoption of this amendment and um, and really some startling and worrisome conflicts where those constitutional you know protected rights for the accused would run headfirst into um, the rights of uh, alleged crime victims okay let's make it a little bit spicier so vote no on Marcy's law yeah. <laughs> if you can see it on your ballot you may be voting no. on that in November by the way uh, let, let's spice it up a little bit the Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association. <laughs> Andy. <laughs> I don't think you want the first word that comes to mind. So <laughs> my, my limited experience with the Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association uh, was in the context of our attempt to end civil asset forfeiture in Pennsylvania. Um, we had a broad bipartisan coalition of groups that thought, it was fairly unreasonable that police can take and keep your property, everything from the cash in your wallet to your house, if they suspect that the property has some connection to a crime, not necessarily a crime you were involved in, just a crime somewhere. And if they suspect this and take your stuff, 
Um, they file a petition against your property. You, the property owner, have basically no rights. You're not a party. You don't have the right to counsel. To get your stuff back, you have to go to court um, a whole bunch of times in Philadelphia. Uh, you have to answer interrogatories that a district attorney gives you, again, without the assistance of counsel. And this could be for literally like $10 in your wallet. The average value of, of stuff that was taken in Philadelphia when we studied this through forfeiture was less than $200. So you're taking days off work. You can't afford to pay a lawyer to get your 200 bucks back. And if at any point you don't show up, you don't file a response to the petition, the government just wins by default without ever presenting any evidence whatsoever to a judge. They win. They get to keep your stuff and they get to put it directly into their own budgets. <laughs> uh, so... A lot of people thought that this really looked like policing for profit and was deeply problematic and should probably be reformed, um, except for the Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association. They were the lone uh, voice on the other side of this issue. DAs make quite a bit of money through civil asset forfeiture every year uh, and manage to effectively kill our efforts at reform. So Molly, I wasn't expecting you to bring that up, but I'm glad you did, because I was, I was at a forum a few weeks ago in Pittsburgh, and um, someone in the audience insisted that the Supreme Court had shut down civil asset forfeiture. Can you explain why that is not the case? Yeah, so um, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and then more recently the U.S. Supreme Court, have tried to impose some constitutional limits on when the government can take and keep your stuff through civil forfeiture. Um, but for the most part, they're recognizing a right not to have the government impose an excessive fine on you that's really only meaningful if you have a lawyer who can help you assert that right in this case. Um, so while there are some limits, they mostly don't accrue to people who don't have lawyers. You're still going to lose your stuff by default, even if it's illegal, even if it's unconstitutional. All right, next phrase. We'll, we'll dial it down a notch. <laughs> uh, the Pennsylvania Human Relations Act. I mean, equality, but you want to... Right, so currently this has been a... It's incomplete, I, perhaps. Incomplete, right. correct. This act does not cover discrimination against LGBTQ people uh, in the... And, and to clarify, it's yes. the state's non-discrimination law. Yeah. It prohibits discrimination in housing, employment, um, and public, and public accommodation. accommodation. Yeah. Right. So, uh, with, and this bill has... There's been a bill that has been sitting in the legislature for an interminable period of time. And for the longest time, it was in a very hostile... Uh, in a committee that was chaired by a very hostile member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. And it has been introduced, I think now, well, not sessions, 20 years? Something like that. Okay, so we, Pennsylvania has two-year legislative sessions, so, but effectively, it's been sitting in committee for 20 years. Um, I think a lot of, at this juncture, we have lots of additional rights that have been accrued to um, LGBTQ people in the United States. Um, and... Pennsylvania is still, shocking, I know for lots of people, still way behind and sort of pulling, you know, we are always the caboose in this kind of situation. And so still has not been passed, still um, would uh, complicate and make it difficult to uh, protect people from overt, you know, blatant discrimination in many cases. And 
And I think part of the problem now is that we want to try to finally move this piece of legislation and most people are under the impression that we already have those protections in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and we don't. And so some of this is trying to educate people that we are so far behind uh, that we, this is still on the agenda. I should add one caveat, which is that the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, the state agency that enforces uh, our state non-discrimination law, has taken the position that the, it, it does prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. And they have taken the, the position that that includes discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and discrimination on the basis of gender identity, that those are really just other forms of sex discrimination. So, but would it be better if that was explicit in the law? Absolutely, absolutely. There's still science. an argument there, but um, we shouldn't have to you know, go to court and make those arguments in order to establish those, that this protection exists. And as a commission, that policy, or, or would that be able to change? To what it, yes. Yes, okay, so. Right, it could change from administration to that's administration. That's right, that's right. Right. Um, all right, how about police body-worn cameras? <laughs> Andy. Okay, so you think Marcy's law was bad. So last session, um, there was a reasonable and an important revision that the legislature needed to make to Pennsylvania's Wiretap Act, uh, which al would allow for police to wear body cameras without having to ask permission of everybody in the public, is it okay if I record you? Pennsylvania is a dual consent state, which means that we need, that if you are to be recording someone else, you need to get their consent and permission. So, which is difficult, understandably, to do if you're law enforcement and you're wearing a camera you, in public, you can't be asking everyone if it's okay that you're being recorded. That being said, there were several, um, so they sort of go, slog through the details of the Wiretap Act, make the exceptions, and then shall we revisit the district attorney, Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association, um, enter them on the scene. And what happened at the, sort of toward the tail end of working up this bill is that they amended the Wiretap Act so that police could wear body cameras and then decided to exclude the footage from the Right to Know Act. So the entire purpose, now there's a separate process that is set up far more Byzantine and questionable that is, you know, has the ability for DAs to uh, pull the plug on it, to say no at the 11th hour um, if they want to release a, a, some of the footage. But effectively what it does is it says, here police, how about this really powerful tool of surveillance that we will give you and then, but we are really tr supporting this because we want to ensure better police accountability and transparency, but just kidding because we're going to make sure that you can't access any of the footage under the right to know law. So if we have, um, if someone, let's take for example a recent, the Antoine Rose shooting in, um, in East Pittsburgh. Now though that department, tiny as it was, did not have body-worn cameras, but had they have done that, it would, might have been possible for them to just say, no, like, you have to do a separate request, this is not covered under Pennsylvania's right to know law, and so effectively what we've done, like, we, people want body cameras because they want police to be held accountable, they want their practices to be more transparent, 
uh, and then the way the legislature, the legislature crafted that language from the bill, they ensured that it, they would make it as difficult as possible, not only for the public to, get, to be able to request a copy of the footage, but also even for anyone who is in the video, <laughs> people that were the subjects of the video, as well as the media, making it very difficult, um, if not impossible, to get the footage. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where be careful a little bit what you wish for, or make sure that we pay attention to what the, the details are in this in these bills, because anytime you're talking about police and enhancing their access to something as powerful as, you know, cameras, um, making sure that there are good, robust accountability mechanisms that are built into that legislation is critical. If they don't, then you've just literally handed them another tool slash weapon in their toolbox. And I want to ask Molly a question about this, but before I do, I just want to remind folks, if you want to ask us a question, uh, Melissa has index cards and pens, so you are welcome to... Uh, to ask us a question as well. Um, so Molly, I want to segue from there, and it's interesting that you brought up Antoine Rose, Liz, because Molly, you have argued some cases around people who, private citizens who recorded the police while they were engaged in some public action. And you've used um, a, a phrase, uh, a sentence, I don't know if you coined it, maybe you did, but I think it's great. Um, Doubt it, whatever it is. The, the, <laughs> the best tool for police accountability is the cell phone in your pocket. Yeah, I highly doubt I coined that, but um, I agree with it. Um, and that's largely because we have so failed to get meaningful police accountability in other means, right? So where we do see something that begins to look like even the beginning of accountability, it's usually because a bystander had a cell phone and recorded some video so that everyone could see how the police were exercising their power and who they were using it against. The cases uh, that Andy mentioned came up because for a while, Philadelphia police like to retaliate against people who recorded them by citing them with something. Uh, disorderly conduct, some other criminal charge as retaliation for recording. So we filed a series of lawsuits against the city of Philadelphia and eventually went up to the Federal Court of Appeals here and got them to recognize that you have a First Amendment right to record the police performing their duties out in public. You have a First Amendment right. They can't tell you not to do it. They can't charge you for doing it. All right, this will be the last one for the Word Association, then we'll start taking some questions. The Supreme Court of the United States. Anything coming to your mind? <laughs> so much. I mean, honestly, what's coming to my mind is that they are, they are the ultimate authority on what the U.S. Constitution means, but we live in a state that has another constitution that offers a lot of similar protections and those rights, the scope of those rights, are determined by a different body of judges, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, um, which has a very different political makeup right now, frankly. Um, so that is what's coming to mind, is like, the U.S. Supreme Court is maybe not where I, the, the body of humans that I want deciding all of my cases right now, um, but it's just one of the two highest authorities that we have. So I'll just say two quick things. The two things that are coming to mind. One is, to Molly's point, uh, what, is that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court was the determining factor in a, our redistricting case for our congressional uh, map, our voting maps, uh, because the way that that case was brought was pretty smart, that it was not requiring or asking the U.S. Supreme Court 
to make a decision about whether or not those districts had been gerrymandered, um, but rather went through and made the case that it had violated the Pennsylvania state constitution, which meant that, that there was no appeal up to, it was the final like stop was the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So that's one. So I think to Molly's point, paying attention to what protections we have that are like in-house here in the Commonwealth is important in how we argue those cases. But then the second I would say is, you know, we just recently in the legislature, we, they, other <laughs> awfulness happening in Harrisburg, um, in the, the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, recently passed a, an abortion ban that would ban abortion following a fetal diagnosis of Down syndrome. Um, this happened during a couple of weeks where we've seen across the nation Lots of states passing really, I mean, medieval types of um, crackdowns on abortion. And finally, I think what we've seen is that they are saying the things that we've known all along out loud, which is they are intentionally crafting unconstitutional pieces of legislation in order to force that, the, that, those bills to be challenged at the Supreme Court level, at the U.S. Supreme Court level, hoping that the current configuration and makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court would be such that they might consider a case to overturn Roe versus Wade and or chip away at some of the most um, fundamental pieces, whatever, you know, sort of what's remaining, not just Roe v. Wade, but Planned Parenthood versus Casey, et cetera, chipping away at some of um, what has been retained as still constitutional. Um, so they're forcing that. So I would just say that, that's, um, that it's a tactical strategy that we've just seen kind of blow up in a way that I th the, the uh, clarity and transparency of their intention is not something that we've seen them admit in prior legislative sessions. One thing I would add, though, is that the Supreme Court is made up of people, very powerful people, but people who read the news and have windows that they look out of occasionally. Um, and since you mentioned the abortion bans, I fully expect, based just on what I have seen in the past week or two, in social media, on the streets, that when those cases do make their way up to the Supreme Court, there will be millions of people outside of that court. Um, and I, I hope you'll all be there. I also think that the state of the court is a reminder to us that Jeez. it is one of three branches of government. And through our power, we have the ability to affect other branches of government. You know, you look here in Philadelphia in 2017, the work that was done around the DA's race. Uh, just this past week, a candidate in Allegheny County, where Pittsburgh is, um, she won a seat on county council. She was uh, campaigning in a t-shirt that said, people, not prisons. Um, so it's just a reminder to us of how, you know, through the ballot box, through other branches of government, we also have power that way as well. So thank you both for playing along. I Absolutely. appreciate that. Was that. Fun. <laughs> so we will move on to the second part, uh, which is our Q&A. So Jamie's bringing us some questions. I hope we can answer them. <laughs> All right. Then Molly, this one's probably for you. And there's actually some legislation around this, too. All right. That, that's, a, that's enough uh, of a preface. Uh, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals stated in 2017 that we always have a First Amendment right to record police doing their duties in a public place. If courtrooms are public places and there are always police officers doing their duties there, how is it acceptable that recording in a courtroom is illegal in PA and many other states? That is such a good question. Um, <laughs> it, it, yeah. I Honestly, I... I think the answer there is that 
Nobody wants to bring the lawsuit that strips away at judges' power to control their courtroom. Sure. I think that is the actual answer, is that I'm not sure there is a very strong doctrinal reason why you shouldn't be able to record in a courtroom. Um, I think there's just the very practical reason that lawyers who have to appear in front of judges and have them decide all of our cases don't really want to bring that particular First Amendment challenge, at least not without a lot of related law um, to support that case. That was, a, that was a piece of legislation that enabled that last session, and I can't recall, and we opposed it officially, so um, that would criminalize recording in courtrooms or its environs, which is always a fun way, of just sort of like, and all the things. You know, so um, as it always is typically with the legislature, they broadly define or are fail to define specifically what they mean by some of the terms that appear in legislation. So we talked about this briefly at the end of the word association, but maybe we can dive in a little bit deeper. Um, women's right to access to abortion and other reproductive choices is under attack around the country, as we have heard in the news a lot recently. What is the state of play in Pennsylvania, and what is ACLUPA doing about this issue? I mean, the abortion in Pennsylvania in terms of, so let's just be clear that any of the legislation or the attempts to pass legislation that would further limit abortion um, in Pennsylvania is added on top of already existing restrictions um, to access to reproductive health care services. So for example, Pennsylvania still has parental notification requirements. Pennsylvania, it's, you are still required to wait 24 hours um, after you receive required mandated state counseling, some of which is questionable in terms of its medical veracity and, and accuracy. And so, um, and I think the recent numbers in Pennsylvania is that 85% of all of the counties in Pennsylvania do not have a clinic that offers um, or performs abortion services, <clears throat> excuse me, and that almost 50% of all of the women in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania live in those 85 counties. And so you're already talking about, and we're actually probably better, not in terms of some of the restrictions, but in terms of our access and the number of clinics we have, a bit better than many states. Some, I think Mississippi now has zero. Um, and a lot of states are like dwindling down to one clinic in an entire state where someone can access um, abortion services. And so, you know, the state of play in Pennsylvania, we had a double abortion ban last session that passed both chambers. Um, and the governor vetoed it. Uh, and that ban would have, made, would have banned abortion at 20 weeks. And also would have banned a commonly used safe, medically safe and proven procedure to terminate pregnancies um, in the second trimester. Um, we had just the recent one uh, to ban abortion following a fetal diagnosis of Down syndrome. And we are anticipating, I think it's Representative Borowitz, shockingly, um, who was on deck to introduce what is, I think, mistakenly referred to as heartbeat bans, which the detection of what they are referring to as a heartbeat at six weeks is actually not technically a heartbeat because the heart has not developed to beat at that point. But um, that there was a, that piece of legislation was introduced last section, and we are anticipating at this session. I would just say that this, the numbers since the midterms, the vote 
gap between, it, we saw a sharp decrease in the margin, which means that when you go, you need to pay attention. To, it's like the, the banging the drum over and over again, paying attention to who you are electing at the state legislature, your state reps or state senators, makes a huge difference. These decisions around abortion, criminal justice reform, et cetera, are made at the state level. These are not federal decisions. Your, your U.S. Senator and your con congressional representative are not gonna be able to fix this stuff. It's all happening in Harrisburg when people's eyes are distracted and sort of gazing at the horror show that's happening in D.C. at the federal level, then we take our eyes off of where real decisions are being made in many cases that are directly affecting our individual lives. Um, I'm looking through these questions and a few of them sound like they might be legal advice. Um, so I definitely encourage folks to check out our information table where you can find out how to get in touch with us. Um, if you think you need legal help, I definitely encourage you um, to uh, check out the, the table. We have our contact information there. Um, I have one here. We talked a little bit about the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. And there's a question here about how the PA Human Relations Commission can assist someone with a job loss. Molly, could you just explain like the- I'm sorry, assist with a what? With, with a job, job loss, loss. And, and oh. claim. Can you just kind of tell us kind of the summary of the process that you, what do you have to go through? Honestly, I'm not sure I uh, okay. can. Sorry, um, I put you on the spot. <laughs> I, there is a, a process to file a complaint with the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. They have a website. I don't think there's, they're that particular about what form your complaint takes, but basically you explain what happened to you, so who, that you were discriminated against in some way and all the facts surrounding that and who you think did the discriminating um, and submit it to your local regional office and they have some staff, investigators, um, that will look into the complaint um, so you don't need a lawyer to file one. I, I can't say, I don't know a ton more about that, their process of investigation and how they reach their conclusions, but that's, that's how you started at least. All right, I got two more. What do you all feel are the most urgent reforms needed in the criminal justice system? Urgent, of course, could be subjective. Bail reform needs to happen. Um, there are, all across the Commonwealth, people who are locked up for no other reason than that they can't pay their bail, uh, which is not what bail is supposed to be. Bail is supposed to be a way to release people and make sure they come back for their court date. It's not supposed to be a way to keep people locked up. Um, there's a whole separate process that DAs are supposed to go through if they think that you should not be released. You're supposed to have extra procedural protections there so that a judge can, can help participate in that decision about whether you are so dangerous that you should not be released. It, the mechanism should not be setting a bail that you can't pay that will guarantee that you stay in. And yet, you know, we constantly see DAs bragging about how somebody really dangerous, they asked for a very high bail. It's not supposed to work like that. Um, our justice system shouldn't turn on on how much money you have or how much money the people in your life can, can bring together to help pay for this, so. Liz, what about you? What do you think are the most urgent reforms in the criminal justice system? So, I mean, I, th I would like to think that we're currently working, you know, we've asked this question of ourselves very directly, and one of the, our priority pieces of legislation this session is probation and parole reform. Um, and in Pennsylvania, we have a really, uh, 
archaic way of, and, and very punitive way of dealing with probation and parole. Um, over half of the people currently in Pennsylvania uh, prisons are comprised of people who were there on a technical violation of either probation or parole, um, which means that they have served their time, they were out, they violated some crazy condition of their release um, or of their probation, and they are automatically re-incarcerated for the full extent of the, the time that they have remaining in the, um, up to the statutory maximum of what that sentence carries. 45 states, including at the federal level, have caps on the amount of time that people can spend on, uh, when they're, sp to spend on uh, probation. The, the problem is, of course, is that, you know, after a certain period of time, someone isn't, they may not be incarcerated, but if they are and they are sentenced then to probation following that, it sets them up. If they violate any small, like, weird condition, they go right back into jail. Um, and it's something that even from our conservative allies, you know, they like to, and I sort of mirror this as well, sort of my um, civil liber libertarian streak, is... Um, they refer to it as state supervision. It's a way that the government tracks you and supervises you for extended periods of time, pretty much waiting around until you violate a condition of that and go right back into jail. And so um, we are working with a huge broad range, a cross section, across the political spectrum, et cetera, um, and different stakeholders on advancing a bill at Senate Bill 14. Uh, for those who are interested, we are hoping to also introduce a sort of a companion piece bill to that that would reform conditions, those conditions that can trip people up for both probation and parole. Um, and so I'd like to think that the most important issue is one that we're actually working on. All right, last question. I apologize we couldn't get to all the questions, but this one is, how soon do you think marijuana will be legal in Pennsylvania? <laughs> I actually think that there's a, well, I think it's important to distinguish between decriminalizing and legalization. And I think, you know, depending on where you are on the spectrum of how much you would want the legalization, I mean, I think there is a far better chance for actual, not the summary offense sort of nonsense, but like actual decriminalization, I think um, maybe more within, I think full-blown legalization is a much harder pitch for, our legislature is incredibly uh, conservative, and that means, you know, I, I haven't said this at any point during our conversation, but it is important to realize that a, on a lot of these issues that we're talking about, whether it's abortion, criminal justice reform, immigration-related issues, it's, we have Democrats that are unhelpful and not allies in that space. And so we have to remember that um, some of these issues don't cut along cleanly along partisan lines. Um, and we have some champions um, in the, on the Republican side. But, um, but that being said, I think to make that pitch in order to get, say, all the Democrats, we make assumptions like, oh, we have the Democrats. But we just need to get the Republicans. It's like, no, not necessarily. So. And see, I was going to say, once all the legislators figure out how they can make all the money well, from the legal weed, I think then we'll get it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I'm glad you brought up that, that word decriminalization, Liz, because I feel like that for this issue to win, it really needs to be tied into this energy, speaking of our previous question, around criminal justice reform. Yes. That, you know, from my understanding is there's a lot of problems getting the bill passed in New Jersey. Um, throughout the marijuana reform um, community, there's a lot of talk about, like, who makes the money, who gets the licenses. But let's just wipe the criminal laws off the books so that people stop getting arrested, stop having to go through that process, some doing jail time. 
um, and, and true decriminalization where it's not even a summary offense. And I think right. if, you, if you tie that into criminal justice reform, um, you get more bipartisan support. 20,000 plus people per year are arrested in Pennsylvania for marijuana possession. Yeah. No, I would agree. And I think there's actually something I've, so now I'm just riffing off the cuff, but I believe that there has been, might have been Chris Rapp, I'm not sure, but um, who's introduced a bill that would adjust and address the DUI standards for, um, which I think is also, if you're going to work on any sort of levels of um, decriminalization, et cetera, but even barring that, I think, um, you know, the, the levels for um, being impaired under the DUI sort of statute is woefully, like, <laughs> problematic. Well, Liz and Molly, thank you so much for being part of this. Thanks, and Andy. For Thanks. participating. Thank you all for being here and for your questions. We appreciate your, your attention. Thank you. Thank you to Liz Randall and Molly Tech Hooper for participating in our first live podcast. I also want to thank Dan Janowitz of Clear Sound, who provided technical assistance on site. If you're enjoying speaking freely, be sure to rate us on your podcast app of choice. Those ratings help people find us and more people can enjoy the show. That's a wrap on episode 26. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free. Be free.